1: So, we are continuing now our study of the book of Leviticus. And this is uh, our 13th study, by the way. And today we are going to look at chapter 19. And this study is titled The Duties of Love. The Duties of Love. Last week we looked at chapter 18, which defined the structure of the family. We saw it also in the light of Christ, the light of christ the light of the trinity and the love between christ and his bridegroom the church and we said that the family is a bible meaning it is a holy word it is something that god instituted to help us understand the trinity the reason why we said a woman proceeds from a man was to teach us about the procession of the son from the father And the relationship of love between a man and a woman teaches us about the Holy Spirit. And hence, the couple, man and woman, together are made in the image of God. Also, man and woman separately are made in the image of God because we have an intellectual soul. But it is the family as a unit that reflect the Trinity. And then we said, we talked about the reason why, therefore... The structure of the family is one man and one woman was because precisely it, this family reflects, it's an image of the Trinity, it gives glory to God and it leads us to understand the mystery of the Trinity. But also, like St. Paul teaches, just as when Christ was crucified, the soldier pierced his side with a lance and blood and water came forth which are symbol of baptism and the Eucharist. Therefore, the church came forth from the side of Christ, just as Eve came forth from the side of Adam. In fact, in Genesis, the language used said God put Adam to sleep. That language in the Hebrew is really um, indicative of death. So really, Adam died so that his wife may live and st paul reminds us that marriage the love between a husband and a wife are made in the image of the love between christ and his church not the other way around that's why in that in that culture of love the man is the head of the family and the wife so, therefore, the man has, has a primacy in the order of authority, but as um, the Catholic Church teaches, the woman has primacy in the order of love. It is not an order of power, like this century and this generation want to think of it, due to abuse that have happened <clears throat> mainly on the parts of men. It is not a structure of power. Where a man imposes his will on his wife, it is a structure of love where a man is supposed to die for his wife. That was defined in chapter eighteen with a proviso that is that, that definition had to take into consideration the fact that the Jewish people back then had were practicing polygamy they were unable to practice this sacred and holy relationship that says one man, one woman. And incidentally, by the way, the only place where you see, the only religion where you see this practiced constantly is in Catholicism and the Orthodox Church. And that's it. Nowhere else will you find one man, one woman consistently across space, across time, as a, an absolute requirement Nowhere else. That was chapter 18. Now that the family was defined in chapter 18, chapter 19 moves into the duties that the entire community made of these families are to, that that the duties that, that the entire community must be able to live up to, must be able to fulfill. And as I read this chapter, we can have the tendency to hear a voice that is only commanding, meaning a voice of uh, someone who is trying to restrict us or 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 um, make us fear him. This is the structure of fear and power that that permeates this culture, where it would seem. Every relation between a man and a woman in which the man plays an assertive role is looked at suspiciously. As if a man asserting his role in the family leads always and in an absolute way to abuse. That has permeated our culture in so many different ways that it is hard for us to hear the voice of God in the scripture In a loving manner. So, I would like you, as you hear this, to reflect on the Trinity talking to us. But in this specific case, I want you to hear the voice of God the Father. Remember, God the Father, not God the Mother, for reasons that are beyond us. Christ always referred to the first person of the Trinity as my Father. Christ was neither bound nor by culture, nor by sin, and He only spoke the truth. Hence, these images, these ideas of a father and a son, the structure that Christ chose to express Himself in, reveals something about the nature of the Trinity, but it is not not a preference. It does not mean that because God is a Father and Jesus Christ is a son, that somehow they prefer men, or that was sort of concocted by men to to assert themselves over women. We need to clearly purify our ability to hear God's voice away from a structure of power, and enter into this structure of love. So what I would like you to do is hear His voice, not just as someone who is Giving orders, do this and don't do that. But as a loving father, infinitely wise, wiser than all of us put together, who knows what is good for us and what is not good for us. And who is giving his children a way of life. And then we're going to reflect on these rules. we we'll try to understand them and see how they, still, they apply or they don't to us today. So here we go, chapter 19, and the Lord said to Moses, say to all the congregation of the people of Israel, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, or on the morrow, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an abomination. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity. Because he has profaned a holy thing of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field to its very border, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God." You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another, and you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him, the wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord." You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go up and down as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand forth against, against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason with your neighbor, lest you bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall there come upon you a garment of cloth made of two kinds of stuff. If a man lies carnally with a woman who is a slave, betrothed to another man, and not yet ransomed, Or given her freedom, an inquiry shall be held. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. But he shall bring a guilt offering for himself to the Lord to the door of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin which he has committed, and the sin which he has committed shall be forgiven him. When you come into the land and plant all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all their fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of their fruit, that they may yield more richly for, for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not practice augury or witchcraft. You shall not round off the hair of your on your temples, or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh on account of the dead, or tattoo any marks upon you. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a harlot, lest the land fall into harlotry, harlotry, and the land become full of wickedness. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or wizards. Do not seek them out, to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall rise up before the hoary head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length, or weight, or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. Those are measures. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them. I am the Lord. Sixteen times we hear, I am the Lord your God, or eight times, I am the Lord your God, and eight times, I am the Lord. Sixteen in total in this chapter, 37 verses. The sets of regulations in this chapter are not exhaustive. They're not a checklist. They're not meant to be, do all these things and then you're good. Rather, we should understand them the way we would understand what we would tell a babysitter who's taking care of kids. We don't sit the babysitter down and for six hours tell this person everything in an exhaustive manner. We give her headings or headlines, and we assume that she'll be able to extrapolate out of those what is it that we really want. And in case she's not sure, what do we expect her to do? Call. Bingo. This is not God saying, all right, I'm going to send you an email. And once you get that email, I'm gone in a place where there's no signal. You're on your own. I'll come back and check up on you in a thousand years. That's not how it's supposed to work. Scripture is God's way of talking to us, expecting us to answer talk back we are in conversation with God so let's keep that in mind having said that let's go back to the very beginning and pay attention to how this is starting so as I said this is God wanting to give his people a set of instructions right what does he start with think of it for a second if you're going to give your children a set of instructions. You're going to give your children a set of instructions. What do you start with? What do you put on that agenda? What do you tell them first? The most, the most important things, right? In your case, what do you think the most important things are? Don't destroy the house. Yes. No party. Okay. Pardon? Okay. Don't kill anybody. How many of you would write at the very top of their list? Go to mass. Be dressed properly. Don't arrive late. Make sure you worship God during the Mass. As your very first thing. That's what God does. Pardon? Yeah, but Mass. First, most of us will start with do the dishes, clean the house, uh, pay the bills. If somebody calls, answer the phone, right? God starts with if you offer a sacrifice, first thing, liturgy. Why? Back to what we said last week. This is the source of grace. If the source of grace is plugged, everything else will go to waste. Yeah? So, when he says here, say to all the congregation of the people of Israel, you shall. Be holy. For I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Why are you supposed to be holy? Because God is holy. Okay, why? I mean, God could have said, you shall be eternal, for I, the Lord, your God, am eternal. Or, you shall be, Omniscient, for I, the Lord your God, am omniscient. Or, you shall be merciful, for I, the Lord your God, am. Right? There's a bunch of stuff God could have picked to start from. Why does he pick holy? And why does he say the reason why you should be holy is because I'm holy? Yes. Yes. Yes, that is absolutely true. If you're not holy, you cannot be in His presence. But there's something, you're right, you're on the right track. But There's something a little more fundamental than that. Yes, that's it. We are made in His image. Let's think about that for a second. We are made in the image of God. What does that mean? It means this. If you had a, a potter, And he decides to make me as a salad bowl. Can I want to be a basketball? Would it make any sense? I'm a salad bowl. Right? Do you understand what I'm saying? I am not in control of who I am. That is a fallacy. That's a myth. I can't be whatever I want to be. That is utter nonsense. Can I be an angel? I can wish to be an angel all I want. I'm never going to be an angel. Can I? I always wanted to be an elephant. It's big and powerful. It can go whatever it wants. It eats a lot and it never falls into gluttony. Hey, not bad. Can I be an elephant? Okay. Not, right? Can I fly? No. You know this. So when you hear that thing that says be whatever you want to be and do whatever you want to do and dream, all that is saying to you is have the license to commit whatever sin you want to commit. In other words, it's a denial of the order of grace and of original sin. It's basically saying everything you want to do, anything you want to do is good as long as you like it. But that's Absurd, Because in the fundamental sense, I did not create myself. God created me in His image. Therefore, I am, in a fundamental sense, constrained. I am a contingent being, as we say in philosophy. My existence depends on the will of God. So when he says... Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He's reminding us that we are created in His image, but it's more than that. Now here's the paradoxical part, and that brings us back to the garden. Okay, I'm going to give you a command right now. Be holy. Go ahead. Anybody there yet? What are you waiting for? Why aren't you holy? Why, why why aren't you holy right now? What is the basic answer to my question? Yeah, we're sinners, all that. But what is the fundamental answer? to all Okay, let me put it this way. Okay, everybody, levitate. Come on. Up the ground. You can't do it. Get it? We cannot be holy on our own. Yeah? Okay, so... What up with God telling them be holy when they can't be holy? So it is like parents who take kids to the Grand Canyon and they're standing right at the edge and they're looking down and the parents say, jump. Go ahead, fly. What are the kids supposed to, 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 to say? Okay. Uh, no, <laughs> they're not supposed to say, okay. That's exactly the problem. That's exactly the problem. This is really profound. That's exactly the problem. Okay. What happens? Yeah, moments later. Yeah. Okay. So, what are you supposed to say? How? You notice this. This how imply you have complete trust in your parents. That they have the answer. And if they told you to do this... It is because they know you're going to be able to do it. You don't know how yet, but they do. You understand that? That is the stupendous answer of Our Lady. Hmm? When she asked the angel Gabriel, how could this be for I do not know man? The answer she was given was, I mean, it blows anybody's mind. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of God will cover you. And out of that cover, out of that presence, a sun will be formed in your womb. So it's like uh, saying to you, you know what, I got this machine, stand behind it. You just press on this button. It'll send a ray out. And you'll have twins. And that is more believable than what Gabriel told her. But that is the depth of faith of Our Lady, her complete surrender to God and her ability to say, behold, I am the slave of God. That's the actual word she used. Let it be done to me according to your word. Let it be done to me. Not, let me do what you said. No, let it be done to me. Hmm? The whole receptivity, the whole obedience the whole abandonment to god's will we be driving on the highway and there's a guy ahead of us who's driving 45 how many of us are willing to abandon ourselves to god's will on that moment instead of abandoning ourselves to yeah a few other thoughts that might come to mind be holy for i the lord your god i'm holy wait a minute how do we do that ah glad you asked did they ask no What did I say? Yep. Jump. How high? We'll jump. You can't even walk. Yeah. You see, God is not going to give you a grace that you're not yet ready or willing to receive. Because if you were to do that, what would that grace become to you? A curse. Exactly. Why? Why? Because you took that grace of God and you defiled it. You threw it away. So therefore, you're standing now guilty before God. Is that the way a loving God should act towards you? Okay, so when we say, well, how come God doesn't answer my prayer? Well, there may be some good reasons why. In order for Him to give you that grace, you must have a willing heart. Right? Right? so then He will let you come and ask again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And in the process, He will purify you and make you ready to receive this grace. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That is the basis of a whole conversation with God. That is the basis of a whole dialogue between God and us. And it is like... Jacob fighting the angel. This is not, for most of us, a gentle dialogue with sipping tea. This is more a battle because it requires us to let go of so much that we hold dear. Be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It starts like this. Then he goes on to say, every one of you you shall rever his mother and his father. So this is in continuity of the definition of the family. Without revering, without this veneration or this respect to the parents, there is no natural structure to the family, and everything else falls by the wayside. Right? Notice also the inversion. Because in the Ten Commandments given in Exodus, it is honor your father and your mother. But here it is rever your mother and your father. Mother comes first. This is why um, in my household, I can put up with kids disrespecting me. But I cannot put up with kids disrespecting their mother. That is a cardinal sin. Rever your mother and your father. Why? Because you see, in in this is a lesson in holiness. If you cannot rever your mother and your father, if your mother and father, let's say, gave you cause of scandal, if you had difficult relationships with them, then you have an obstacle to move up to God. Because God, in your head, will be portrayed like your parents. Because the family is a Bible. We learn about God through our parents. So if our parents have given us cause of scandal, it's hard for us. It's an uphill battle. Not uninsurmountable, Surmountable. Especially if we then go and rely on Our Lady. She will bring us to God. But nevertheless... Respect and honor of parents is part of the holiness program. Therefore, the parents must deserve it. You cannot honor that which is dishonorable. Let's not kid ourselves. You cannot honor that which is dishonorable. If the parents themselves have acted in dishonorable ways and have caused scandal in the family, how could you honor them? That's not what God is asking. God's not saying, no matter what your parents do, shut up and then respect them. No way. Respect is not a right. I don't have the right of respect. It's a privilege that is due to grace. And the only reason why, the fundamental reason why I would want my kids to respect me is because through that respect... They're learning to honor God. That's all. Because only God is truly worthy of respect. All of us are sinners. Right? But the love of the Holy Spirit flowing in the family covers many of our defects. And the children are very forgiving. As long as we love them. As long as the flow of the Holy Spirit is flowing through. And that's the definition of love, by the way, in the family. Nothing else. You're allowing the Holy Spirit to flow through. He's the consoler. He's the advocate. He is the, um, the, the Spirit that God sent us to be with us. That means you must be open to life. Because the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life, as we say in the creed. And so as soon as parents, mothers and fathers, decide to contracept, they have closed themselves to life, they have closed themselves to the Holy Spirit, they no longer are truly able to love their children, and where they are unable to love their children, they will lose the respect of their children, and the children become disobedient, and they become rebellious. There's no mystery there. It's the logic of grace. Hence, the consoling thing for us who are living this life. And if you know someone who is not in this life, pray for them and encourage them to move, to let go, to open that flow, to trust in the Holy Spirit, to guide them. Because when you do that, despite your many failures and despite your, your, de- your, your, your sins or your tendencies, the Holy Spirit still flows and the Holy Spirit helps the children forget and the Holy Spirit helps the children go over it and love you so that they can love God. Just when you are open to life. You shall keep my Sabbath. Now that you rever your parents, you can keep the Sabbath. You notice that? You see how the two are related? When you rever your parents, when the family structure is there, you can then keep the Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath is not, okay, it's the Sabbath... Now, I'm just going to keep it formally. I'm going to go through the process of doing all the things that God wants me to do. Keeping Sunday holy is not just going to Mass. It's an essential part of keeping Sunday holy, going to Mass. But if you're going to Mass, and you are not talking to your wife, or you're not talking to your children, you're sitting on resentment, you're not working on it, you're not Asking to be forgiven, you're not able to say, I'm sorry, even if you didn't make that fault, even if what they're telling you you did, you didn't do, just so that you allow the flow of grace back into your house, you're not keeping Sunday holy. Keeping Sunday holy is not a liturgical obligation only, it is a moral obligation. It says something about the way we behave. That's how Sunday stays holy. Then do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. Notice, the family first, revere your parents. Now that you can do that, you keep my Sabbath. What does that mean? It means do not turn to sports and make of baseball a god. It means you don't put sports before the Lord, before Sunday. That's what it means. It means you do not allow any occupation that you have, anything that you do to come before the worship due to God. Also, you do not allow, and listen carefully, men. This is mostly directed at you, although increasingly increasingly so to women as well. You do not allow your work, However important it may be, however urgent it may be, to take over your family. Because if you think that you have to do certain things in order to uh, make a living, and those things are now trumping your family, and trumping your keeping Sunday holy, then you're back to trusting in yourself you're no longer in conversation with God. Because God is not contradicting himself. If he tells you, keep my Sunday holy, he intends to give you the means to keep his Sunday holy. But he's waiting for you to ask. He's waiting for you to ask. I have couples who come and tell me that they would love to have more kids, but they can't because they have to work. Meaning the wife has to work. And in many cases, especially in environments which are non-Catholic, where I can't speak freely my mind, I pray for them so that God may remind them to enter into conversation with Him. Have they gone before the Lord, have they gone before the Blessed Sacrament, knelt down and said, Lord, is that what you want me to do now? Must I be working now? Or... Can I stop working? Is God part of the equation? Is God part of the solution? Or is he on the side and everything depends on you? There are cases where you end up having to work. But has God, are you in conversation with God over this? Do you understand what you need to do? And are you asking for it? That's how we live our faith. This is how we keep his Sabbath holy. By that ongoing conversation with him, so that he may guide us into where he wants us to go. Oftentimes, we don't ask him, like the Israelites. Whatever you say, God would do. You, know, you want us to go to Mass? I'll go to Mass. And um, okay, I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments as long as I understand them, right? I'm not going to... Steal or kill or do any of that stuff, but other than that, I'm just going to do what I'm what I'm going to do. That's it. Think about that. Okay. So then he goes straight into the sacrifice. How a sacrifice must be offered, and he reminds them of the. Sacrifice of praise, right? Because he tells them right here, when you offer sacrifice of peace offerings, right? You're coming to make peace with me. This is how you offer it. He's not intent on saying only that sacrifice. This is the heading. This is like a bookmark reminding them of all the other sacrifices they have to offer. And all of them must be offered according to his laws so therefore for us it means that when we go to mass we do everything we can to truly live that moment and when we go to mass please please remember this you are not going to mass to get something you're not going to mass to get something you're going to mass to give glory to god That is why primarily you're going to Mass. And the reason is the church commands us to go to Mass every Sunday. But the church commands us to receive Holy Communion once a year on Easter. That's it. You do not have to receive Holy Communion every Sunday to fulfill your obligation. Because the obligation is to give something, which is give the glory to God. Therefore, anytime you're tempted, you're tempted to satisfy your own desires. Speak in church to say something that is completely irrelevant as far as God is concerned. Look at that guy or look at this guy. See how this guy is dressed or this guy is dressed or whatever the case may be. Mortify yourself, because you're here to give glory to God. You're not here to satisfy yourself. Anytime you're tempted to complain about the harmony, it's too long, it's too short, it's too shallow, it's too deep, I don't understand it, I, it's boring. Mortify yourself. You're here to give the glory to God, not to receive. If you're tempted to give a dollar, put yourself in God's shoes, so to speak. And it's your birthday, and your friend who says that he cares about you, she cares about you, come over and offer you as a gift, a dollar. How would you feel about that? Well, if you and I, who are mere sinful human beings, might be shocked, a trifle, By seeing someone offering us a dollar. What about God? Are we being holy when we do that? Or are we just consoling our conscience that we actually gave something? Think about that. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Don't go through the liturgy like a Catholic on autopilot. I do this, I stand, I sit, I kneel, I da 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 and I have no idea what I'm doing. The heart isn't in it. The gestures are there. My body is there. My, my heart is somewhere else. Okay? And God isn't asking us to do this because He needs our glorification. He's simply asking us to do this so we can gain merit, so that we can show that we love Him, so that in justice when we are standing for our personal judgment and the devil shows up to accuse us of the many, many sins we've committed and to make his case that we should be denied heaven on account of those sins, shall the answer be that we are going to make it to heaven purely on God's mercy? Because He carried us when He carried His cross like a dead weight? Is that how we show our love? If you love, you care. Then, notice then again, this word in verse 7. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an abomination. That word recurring again. Last time, we talked about that word appearing in a number of places of Scripture. And we said, let's be careful not to pick and choose. Right? Because in chapter 18... God said, if a man lays with a man in the manner of a woman, it's an abomination. But in Exodus, he also said, if a woman dresses in men's clothing, it's an abomination. And here he says that if, we, if they eat that offering on the third day, it's an abomination. We have to be careful not to pick and choose between the ones that pleases us, please us and the ones that don't. We need to understand the spirit behind these letters. Obviously, this doesn't apply to us. There's no third day as far as we're concerned. But what is being meant here? What is being meant here is that do not take a holy offering that you are saying you want to give to God completely and then put it to your own use. Because if you're keeping to the third day, you're already counting on food. here's an example that is much closer to us you have a nonprofit organization and this nonprofit organization has a bunch of donors who who give regularly if this nonprofit organization becomes dependent on those donations right and already planning how to spend the money that is supposed to be donated and if somebody who was a donor decides not to give right and it causes a crisis we have a problem it is no longer doing it in the right spirit it's now has subverted the whole operation for their own purpose. That's why it's an abomination. It is effectively testing God, using God for our own purpose. That's what's abominable about it. And we must be careful not to do the same. Some of us can be tempted to be in the faith because we get something out of it. All of us have that temptation. We are here because we want something from God. And if God doesn't give it to us, then what do we do? We take off. We leave. We get upset with Him. Why? Because it's about us. You understand? This is a complete subversion of the relationship we're supposed to have with God. And that's what this is about. Be careful not to fall into something like that. So, so far... He, structured, he essentially established the family. He told them about respects to parent as the foundation to be able to honor the Sabbath, as well as the liturgy. Those two go together. And then he told them now, be careful not to take me for granted. Be careful not to try and use me. It won't work. Then he turns around and starts talking about their, the other. Right? So beginning with verse um, 9, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field to its very border, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And likewise about the vineyard. The whole idea behind it is generosity. Generosity. Um, The whole idea behind it is to think about others. And more importantly, to always remind ourselves... Our our food depends on God. We are wholly dependent on Him. Therefore, let us not pretend like He doesn't exist. When you harvest, and you harvest everything for yourself, the first thing you're doing is an act of idolatry. Idolatry. You are worshipping yourself. You're no longer in conversation with God. But if you take what you need in a reasonable sense, and you leave the rest out, you're saying to God, what you've given me today, tomorrow you can give me the same. Give us this day our daily bread, not give us this day our daily dozen breads. Yeah? Our daily bread. The reason why God wants it this way is to constantly remind us that we depend solely on Him. Right? then it is also care towards others the poor the ones who don't have what it what it takes to feed themselves therefore god likes it when you are generous towards others in ways that hurt you when you're spending money on something that you would rather spend differently because in that spend, you're saying to God, hey, I know you're around. I trust you. You'll take care of me. Let me take care of my brother. That is worth gold for God because it shows that we are in conversation with Him. It shows that we really trust Him. And that's very important. Therefore, there is a logic here that follows. You shall not steal. You see, if you start to be very careful about everything you want for yourself and making sure you're getting it down to the last penny then that's that worm can f- can fester and lead you to steal you'll take one step further right because you need it you'll justify it so god is saying do not steal that's why he reminds them of. There's a connection that is very organic in the entire text. This is not a simple random list of regulation. There is a psychology at work here of conduct. The way we behave that God is shedding light on and warning us. If you do this, it will lead you to the next one, which is to steal. And then you will deal falsely. Then you will lie. Then you will, sh- you will swear by my name falsely. And then profane the name of your God. You see the escalation? Right? So be, be careful, please. Don't say lightly, I swear to God. Because you want to convince me that you're speaking the truth. I shudder when I hear, hear these words. When you say, I swear to God, you have engaged God's name that is not something we do lightly. Only when it's absolutely required, like in a a court or something, would you use such words. Do not swear, Christ reminded us, by anything. Yes? Yes. No? No. That should be sufficient. So now that you've sworn in the name of God, what happens next? Next, you will oppress your neighbor or you will rob him. You will keep the wages of a hired servant with you until the morning. The hired servant is paid every day at the end of the day. Keeping it till morning, meaning you're paying him the following day. You kept it away from him. He may he may go to, to, to bed hungry. That's abuse. That's taking advantage of someone. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. What is meant here is that... Um, Cursed the deaf, obviously they cannot hear you, right? So it's making fun of them, making fun of their weaknesses. And then putting a stumbling block before the blind, mean, meaning that it doesn't necessarily simply mean a physical blindness. Let's say I am new to uh, the United States, and I'm not aware of some of the schemes that might happen, like spam, right? Somebody can come and take advantage of my blindness. He put a stumbling block for me. Meaning, again, do not mistreat, do not abuse, do not take advantage of someone's weaknesses for your own benefit. You notice, all these things, all of them, are about what? People who have separated themselves from God. People who are no longer in conversation with Him, trying to ask Him every day, what do you want me to do? You see, that's the big danger when we are not praying every day. When we don't pray in the morning, when we don't pray in the evening when we will pray at noon, when we're not praying, the, the the gravitational pull of self is so powerful that it can take us away from God. That is why prayer is so essential. It's the oxygen that allows grace to flow into your heart. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason with your neighbor, lest you bear sin because of him. You shall not hate your brother in your in your heart but you must reason with him you have a problem with someone someone did something that wounded you someone did something that is uh grievous to you don't sit on it don't let it fester don't let it turn into resentment because resentment can lead to sin because it leads to hatred Rather, you should go and reason. Meaning what? You should sit down and talk to your neighbor, your brother. Even if that conversation is bound to fail, the fact that you did it, the fact that you did it, is critical because you allow the Holy Spirit to flow in your heart and bring His graces with. Because you took that step. Even if it completely failed even if there was nothing concrete that came out of it. But because you were courageous, because you were humble, because you wanted justice, because you wanted to do God's will, all these works that you perform in God's name are never, never gone to waste. But God will reward you by bringing peace in your heart, by maybe opening the heart of your brother, because you took that step. So, always remember you have a problem with someone, find a place, find the time to sit down and share with that person what you're going through. Don't accuse him. Don't say, You did this and you did that. Rather say, I have a problem. I have an issue. Here is my problem. Please help me with my problem. By doing it this way, you're not pointing an accusing finger at that person. Rather, you're asking for their help. Even if it makes no sense to you by being humble, you allow the Holy Spirit to flow, and you don't know what that will do to you and to the other. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is repeated verbatim by our Lord, right? By St. Peter's letter, right? Also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love neighbor. These are the two greatest commandments. They summarize the entire law. Everything is about love of God and love of neighbor. These are the two greatest commandments. They summarize the entire law. And so God puts it centrally in the middle of the chapter to remind them of how essential it is to love your neighbor. To love your neighbor. And love your neighbor means all, th- all those things. Love your neighbor doesn't mean I don't go to Mass, and I don't pray, and I don't honor my parents, but I love my neighbor. It's organic because it's all about the flow of the Holy Spirit that alone can allow us to love our neighbor. This is about living a holy life. We can't take ourselves and split ourselves four different ways, and in the way of loving our neighbor, we can be holy. And this is really my, in a fundamental sense, my questioning about the current social doctrine of the church not the doctrine, but the, uh, the approach that somehow, sometimes we take here in the United States, where we talk about the poor, the lonely, and how we have to take care of them, but somehow we don't mention that we must, we must worship God in the liturgy. And then we must do everything we can for the liturgy to be absolutely beautiful. Because guess what? We can't, in truth, love our na- the, the poor and love those who have nothing if we are not, first and foremost, worshipping God the way we're supposed to. All right. Um, this business of a man lying carnally with a woman who was a slave bears some requires some explanation for the context. In ancient Israel, if it was permitted for a a Jewish man to sell his daughter in order to redeem himself of a debt. This was done in extreme cases. When that happens, this daughter now is a slave to another Jewish man. He has three options. He can take her himself as his wife, or he can give her into marriage to someone else. Therefore, she's redeemed. Or she can stay and live in his house. Those are the three conditions. So notice, nowhere in these three conditions is, there, is this man permitted in one way, shape, or form to abuse this girl. Now, if this girl is uh, promised in marriage to the man and there is a, a, a sexual relation that happens between this girl and another man, since she is not free. Right? She is not free; they're not to be put to death. So, God is teaching Israel about that importance of freedom and how people who are free are to be treated differently than those who are not. He's using a language they can understand. In this case, if this happens, then the one who committed that um, um, that sin must offer a sacrifice to be forgiven, and must offer a, must make compensation to the man who has this girl as a slave, so that he can then take care of her for the rest of her life, because she's going to live with it. Notice, God is not instituting a structure of slavery. God is not instituting a structure of slavery, nor is God condoning a structure of slavery. God is working on what, ha- what he has, what we've given him. He's basically saying, if this happens, you do not kill the girl. Because without that law, the chances are they may kill her. Why? Because she's a burden to them. You understand? Remember, God is, is pouring in his grace into a structure that is fundamentally sinful. But he's working his way through what is before him. Why? Because they haven't come and asked for grace. And that's what happens often in ourselves, in our families. He will give us as much as we can take. You shall not round off the hair of your temples or mar the edges of your beard. Those where behavior, obviously God is not objectively against rounding right, the hair of our temple today. It, it, it has no bearing or meaning to, for us. But remember, their reference, their point of reference is Egypt. All this kind of behavior typified uh, uh, cultic behavior that was pagan. So when he says that, it would be like us saying, um, you cannot listen or you cannot watch, uh, I don't know, MTV. When we say that, we're saying a lot more than just what I said. Right? Or you, uh, you cannot go into the red district. If you take that sentence out of context, let's say in a thousand years from now, people may wonder, oh, they must have had red district and blue district and yellow district and green district and they colored their district somehow. But for some reason you shouldn't go into red because maybe red was connected with blood. Well, it's a That's an interpretation that's completely out of context. We know what red district means for us because of the context in which we live. Likewise, back then, those were behavior that would lead them to, it would be essentially a sign that they're actually going to engage in these kinds of activities. And it is, uh, now we're moving closer into, so so there is sort of a gradation of sin as you move into the text, um, as you move away from holiness, That gets you now more and more into magic and witchcraft, right? You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not practice augury or witchcraft. There was, obviously, augury and witchcraft being practiced where blood played an essential role. Okay? Uh, By the way, augury back then was reading the clouds. Remember, in the Middle East, clouds tend to be a somewhat rare phenomenon. It doesn't happen every day. You're not in Canada where it's cloudy for a long part of the year. So therefore, the shape of the cloud, the number of the cloud, the structure of the cloud meant different things. Okay? Later on, through different influences in the Middle East, they replaced this with reading the coffee. Right? So if you're doing this or you know people who are doing it, please tell them to stop. You're not to read. So what, For those of you who are looking at me wondering, what is he talking about? Here's what happens. They, they pour the Turkish coffee into a little cup. You have that, right? Yeah. What happens is you have to let it sit because the coffee, the mar, has to go all the way down to the bottom. You don't drink that. So once you're done with the coffee, here's what they do. They take it. They twirl the rest of it and then turn the little cup upside down and let it dry. And then once it's dried, they take it and look into the shapes that the marks of the coffee have made on that thing to see a whole zoo, horses and and I don't know what else. And based on what they see, they start to tell you your future. And then they might even ask you to put your thumb at the bottom and whatever figure they see in there means something. Uh, Don't do that. Yes, of course. Yes, people think the Ouija board is fun. No. No. There are plenty of other things we can do for fun. That is not one of them. Okay? So please, if you're doing it, stop. Go to confession. And then... And don't bow to pressure if you go and somebody insists on doing it for you. Don't. Yes. Yeah, to me, it's, it's, uh, this fortune cookie business is, is really at the edge. You see, we are gullible. We are gullible. And to think otherwise, to think that we're stronger than being influenced. Right? Think about compliments. Anybody who compliments us, we're gullible. So, fortune cookie fall on the same thing. I typically stay away from them. Not because I think that it is witchcraft. Don't get me wrong. It's not the same thing as the mug or the coffee, right? But we have weaknesses. Oh, by the way, reading your horoscope, same thing. Really bad. Don't bother. Ignore it. Do not read it. Okay? Oh, palm readers even worse. Okay? Palm readers, any of the psychic stuff... As soon as you get into this, now you're getting a lot closer to demonic influence. I'm talking, now you're getting into the big league. That other stuff is the little league. So please, none of that. None of that. Uh, If you're wearing a blue stone, because you want to ward off the bad eye. Two mistakes not to make. Number one, to laugh about the bad eye. Don't. It's real. Absolutely. Ah uh, yeah, absolutely. It is exorcist will tell you that is a phenomenon that is observed. It's real. It can happen. It's a way in which people can put a hex or a curse on someone else. Those are absolutely real things. But what is your protection? Bluestone? No. Being in a state of grace. Going to confession. The Eucharist, the sacraments, then the sacramentals. In that order, not the other way around, not because I'm wearing a cross that I'm... No. It's all these other things first. You understand? This is living a life of faith. Okay. Do not turn to mediums or wizards. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. All right? And also, the other one I want to talk about is tattoo. So, back then, tattoo was also connected with magical artifacts and slashing was connected with uh, um, uh, pagan worship. For instance, if you remember the prophet Elijah who got into battle with the priest of Baal. Those guys were slashing themselves as they invoked Baal. They had their own blood dripping so that um, Baal would answer them. So, that kind of behavior, all of it is connected with... Um, witchcraft and with um, with uh, magic. Today, in most cases, people who want to have a tattoo on them, right, um, are not doing it with the intent of witchcraft, right? Now, some may, but generally speaking, they're not. Still, tattoo is objectionable for the following reason. Would you? And once I say that, you'll understand it completely. Would you take your brother while he's asleep and have somebody tattoo something on him? Why wouldn't you? What is the reason that would that lead you to say, no, I would not do that? Pardon? It's against his will and it's not your body, right? Yeah? Now, those of you, anyone here, who owns his or her own body, please stand up. That's good, because that implies you're all baptized. Because in baptism, Christ paid the price for you. He paid the price for you. You are redeemed, remember? Yeah, redeemed means he paid the price, because you were owned by the devil, he paid the price for you. This is not your body. It is His. Do you understand? Therefore, honor your body because it is Christ's. Surgical procedures. Okay. Um, yes and no. Some surgical procedure may be due to uh, psychological reasons. Someone, let's say, who has a really uh, poor face so no, may not have... Uh, okay. okay. So, see, it's not therefore, it's not the surgical procedure itself. It's the, it's the reason behind it. If somebody needs to do an operation so they can find a job, I'm all for it. Right? If, if their physical appearance is preventing them from being employed, they need to find a job, it kind of makes sense depending on the cost, obviously, right? Um, but for vanity, now that's a different story. That is vanity, and by definition, it is vicious. It's never virtuous. It's never virtuous. So, all right, so now we, this is an important consideration here. And the last thing we will say here is that the... You're not going to show any preference, neither to the poor nor to the rich when it comes to justice. And this is really, really hard for us. It's very hard. Right? Particularly when it comes to the unborn. Most many of us commit actually theological error because we canonize the unborn directly in heaven. Why? Because we have a preference to the poor, to the innocent. But it's a theological mistake. If somebody is not baptized, you can't just send them to heaven because you'd like to. You understand? So, therefore, we must keep level. Reason, logic must trump over emotions. Not kill emotions, trump over them and direct them to right reason, which is Christ. Make sense? Okay. So then, the whole chapter here is, again, a caring father who is infinitely wise, instructing his children in their behavior, telling them, if you do not start from the summit, start from the source, holiness, through worship, through your family, through reverence, you will be inexorably led to all sorts of deviant behaviors. But even if you do, I am with you, and here is the way to come back to me. And this is why you can hear, if you read carefully, you can hear the voice of Christ speaking through this chapter. So, tonight, perhaps you would want to take a moment to reflect in your prayer on your life. Do a quick examination of conscience. Where are you? Are you in conversation with God? Is God part of your daily life? Are you talking to Him? If not, what is preventing you? and ask Our Lady and the Saints to help you remove these obstacles so that you can grow in love and in union with God and worship Him in heaven with all the angels and the saints. Please let us stand and finish with a word of prayer, and we will take some questions. Yes, so the question is, if you have someone who in their house have crucifix and statues and then also have Buddhas and dragons and objects of that kind, what would you do? what would you have to say to them? I think the first thing I would want to do is to sit down and get to know them better, get to know where they're coming from, and better understand what these objects mean to them. If these objects are there simply because, let's say a Buddha, simply because they, they conceive them as a work of art, as something that they, they, they enjoy, or something that has a material value, then I would want to know if, in their eyes, the crucifix and the statues are also considered in the same way. If that is the case, then I have somebody who is obviously not in a faith and who is an art collector of sorts. I don't think this is the situation you're dealing with, right? No. Then the next question would be is to help them understand why would you have next to a crucifix a Buddha? What does it mean to you? And once I can understand what it means to them, actually help them understand it themselves, they may realize the oddity and the fact that it doesn't really give glory to God to put these statues side by side. If in the process you discover that they think that Buddha is like Christ or Buddha is another way to get, then you have a deeper problem you're dealing with. Make sense? Okay. It's important to listen, to really try to understand where the, the... the problem is, yes, so the word marriage. I don't know offhand the history of the word itself. What it is, its background, where does it come from? It's a really great question, and I should actually look into it. N- nevertheless, the foundation of the family, of which marriage is a, um, a means of unity, that is in Genesis, right? It is with the words a man and a woman, uh, so now we're talking 4,000 years ago. What we notice is that there are other cultures where the foundation was similar. You either have it in a polygamous sense. We had one man, multiple women. There are cases where it's actually one woman, multiple men. It's rare, but it does exist. So do they call it a marriage? No, they did not use the word marriage. If, if you're keen on the word marriage itself, yeah. it was not used this way. We find it in Scripture Uh, For instance, the word marriage is used in the book of Revelation, right? The wedding feast of the lamb. It is used also in the Gospel of St. John, right? The wedding at Cana. Uh, It is obviously part of the whole Torah that we're dealing with here. And it is present, um, not the word itself, but the union of a man and a woman is present among the Egyptians, the Akkadians, the Babylonians. You find it across all these cultures, so what is the question behind the question? in other words, why are you asking that question so currently in California, United States, a civil union as it is called, has the same rights. but there is a need you have to understand that what is being pursued here is a moral it's a moral um, imperative to say that in a fundamental sense A union between two people is gender independent. That's the statement being made. The foundation of the society is a family. And in a Judeo-Christian civilization, gender is intrinsic to who you are. It is not like your hand or your nose. I mean, if I lose part of my nose, I'm still who I am. Right? Gender isn't like that. So there is this view among a group of people who think that, no, it is actually something independent of who you are. You can change gender and stay who you are. And being a father or a mother are pure roles that can be played by anybody. In fact, there is a, there is a group here in California who wants to define marriage as the union of any consenting group of persons. Today, it's persons. In the next generation, it would be living things. So, uh, there is no restriction that we as human beings can put on that concept by ourselves. Um, That's why, from our perspective, the whole... Uh, issue of gay marriage is about defining what this culture is all about. And once you allow gay marriage, which is a deformation of the concept of marriage, you've now said that the society is no longer is no longer structured to foster families who can recognize God. It is actually structured to foster something completely different. And when that happens... God, through the Old Testament and the New Testament, tells us when the society itself becomes so vitiated that it, it blocks grace completely, He makes way with it. So that's why it's so, so important. Just as you can have a sinful inv- individual, you can have a sinful society. And that's why it is such, a, such a, um, an issue that is contentious and is important. Remember, this business of right, we've bought into that language. Right. But what is a right, and where does this right come from? If we say the majority defines what the right is, if we say it's ruled by majority, then we know where that takes us. Right? So what is right, and who defines what is right? That is also another important element of this conversation. What I'm saying is, and you can find it in the Catholic, in uh, the really good questions, by the way. No, you see, it's been... let, let me just answer you. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is very clear a person with homosexual tendencies should be respected and never um, put down in any way, shape, or form, ever. We're very clear on that. Hence, The church speaks in clear terms. It's not just about rights. It's about defending the dignity of a human being. And in that regard, every human being. No exceptions. Are we clear? This is the teaching of the Catholic Church. So there is never in the Catholic Church ever any statement that would say that you are allowed to disrespect, you are allowed to persecute, you are allowed to... Abuse or make fun of someone with a homosexual tendency or otherwise. Make sense? Okay. Doesn't mean, though, that does not mean that they have rights the way they claim to. Do you see the difference? Yes. So that is. Right, right, right. That is a matter of civil. Uh, this is a matter of civil society to decide what they should and should not do, right? And in that regard, what must be uh, put forth is what is good for the society as a whole, right? Which is really hard to define. Because it's really linked to what is the moral conduct that we want to have in a society. We have to understand one thing, though. Um, When you have... When you start to say that certain laws or certain rules or rights that belong to the family are now transposed to this other group you are undermining the family. And when you undermine the family, which is the foundation of society, you've undermined the entire society. Chesterton puts it really well. He says, modern man does not know what he's doing because modern man does not know what he's undoing. In other words, we're playing with fire. We think that these laws are innocent. There are no consequences to them. But the consequences are very significant. That's why... It's such a difficult and thorny issue, especially when the society itself and the majority of the people in that society have lost their moral compass. In which case, the conversation becomes really, really, really difficult. You understand? Yeah. But thank you for asking this question. Yes. So the question is, you have parents of a person with homosexual tendencies. This is the proper way of saying it. We don't believe there is such a thing as a gay person. That's, again, something they want to impose on us. But there is no even psychological basis for that language. Someone with homosexual tendencies. Fine. Who decided to have a marriage? Parents who are Catholic are not to assist, participate in any way, shape, or form to this. Because think about it. If you say you're Catholic, you mean I believe all the things that the Catholic Church teaches, and I hold them to be true. If somebody says, I'm going to have a homosexual marriage, which is contrary to the truth, and you go and you participate in it, you're participating in the lie. You can't be participating in a lie and still saying, I believe in the truth. So, what they should do, right? They should tell their son that they love him very much. They should explain to him why they cannot attend, right? And they should find other ways to support him, right? Pray for him, love him, help him, be there for him, but not go and receive communion. You mean the party? Yeah. Um, they can if they want to uh, attend the party. Yes, that would, be, that would not be... An infraction against their faith because they did not participate. By the way, it's not, I want to be very clear here, it's not about just homosexuals. Right? Say, I told you last time, someone who is a Catholic marrying a Protestant, same deal, right? So it's the same issue. So I'm not saying it has to do with the fact that this is uh, a homosexual marriage. Yes? No, no, there is a difference between, obviously, there is a, there is a gradation in, uh, in uh, if you will, um, in sinfulness right? Definitely. It's not at the same level. But the reason why you would not attend primarily isn't because it's a homosexual marriage. It is because it's contrary to the truth of the Catholic Church. And therefore, that alone is sufficient to say, I cannot attend. Right? That's the key here. And if they go to the party and they're there to support their son, but they're not particularly happy about it, there's nothing, there's no wrong done in that sense. I'm not saying they go and they just revel with everybody and they're super happy about it. It's just there's a conduct also that is involved here. Make sense? Yes. So first of all, the first question you need to ask yourself is, God, do you want me to speak? God has to be part of your conversation. St. Francis always said, preach all the time. And when necessary, use words. So God, should I talk to them maybe it's not the time maybe your pain your frustration is the fuel he needs to pour graces on their souls so in god's good time first you pray you ask your god an angel to inspire you you ask your god an angel to find the right moment the right way and the right words to help you say what you have to say that's how you do it in all in all situations yes okay Yes. Oh, very good question. The, 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 if It's not that it's okay to kill a prostitute. The question is, why did he single only the slave woman and not anything else? Is it okay to kill a prostitute? It's not okay to kill a prostitute. It is commanded by the law to stone a woman who, who is committing an act of adultery. And the man too. Right. In this specific instance, what he's saying through this particular law is to be merciful. She belongs to you. Right? She's not free. Do not lay upon her the duties of a free woman. That's what he's saying. Hence, you use that as a principle for a bunch of other things as well. Make sense? Okay. Yes. Oh, am I implying a Catholic cannot marry a Protestant? No. A Catholic can marry a Protestant if this Protestant wants to be married in a church. Okay, absolutely. Yeah, but if the pro- Catholic decides to go marry be married at a Protestant church and he has not he has not said I am no longer a Catholic, right? He still says I'm a Catholic, but I'm getting married over there. Well, that's a contradiction in You cannot be part of that. Yes. I don't think there is a specific regulation how you ought to act in that situation, so you have to exercise prudence if you can see the tabernacle, now I think it makes sense to genuflect towards it. If you cannot see it at all, I, I would not. Because what are you genuflecting to, right? So uh, that's the rule of thumb I use. But I don't know of a proper behavior when the tabernacle is not of view. By the way, remember this. If you have an altar, in the Latin rite, you bow before the altar. You do not genuflect. No, In the Latin rite, you bow before the altar. You genuflect before the tabernacle. In the Maronite rite, you bow before both. You do not genuflect. So when you go, if you go to an Eastern rite liturgy, please do not kneel at all. Hold on. I'm talking about Mass. Sorry. sorry. Let's make sure nothing is left hanging here. During the Mass. Outside of the Mass, yes, you kneel. It takes precedence. You kneel. But if you only have an altar, no tabernacle, you bow. Yes. Yeah. There is no clear-cut answer to this question, which is should we, if we could, prolong the life, our life to a thousand years, let's say. Should we or not? There are a number of criteria that must be taken into consideration. The cost. Is it something reserved only to the rich? Does it impinge on the resources available to everyone else? Um, Are there any side effects? What is the implication and why are we doing it? All these questions have to come into effect before something like this be considered. Having said all that, there is no, this is not in the same category as contraception or abortion. Where it's categorically denied. Right. Or condom use for purposes of contraception. Right. So, in those cases, that is definitely it's called a grave disorder, objectively. In this case, it's open. Yes. The question is, how do we know, because if they received communion, how do we know they've committed actually a sin? So, there's an objective side and a subjective side. All that we can speak of is the objective side. Communion is a sign of unity, theological and moral. That's why we're called the community of believers. That's why it's so important that we worship in the same way. We all stand at the same time, kneel or bow at the same time, because we are showing unity of belief, of worship. That means we are declaring that we believe and hold all the things that the Catholic Church teaches to be true when then you go and you participate in another celebration, gay marriage or otherwise, that is contrary to the teachings of the Catholic Church, you've now said, I have stood witness to this union, which I hold to be true. Hence, you have now dissented from the teachings of the Church. Objectively it would amount to a clear separation from what the church teaches on these issues hence you have separated yourself from the church you come back and you receive communion there is an objective disorder here and it's grave because it's the eucharist now they may not know they may not understand they may have that's a completely different story they may confess pardon may. my goal here is not to Determine their subjective, meaning as to the subject, uh, disposition. All that I can speak to is the objective nature of what has happened. You can't go to a Protestant worship on one Sunday and go to the Mass on the next. Right? (laughs) Uh, hold, Hold on. If they decide to move in, right? If they decide to move in. Okay, look, I don't want to belabor the topic, but I do not necessarily think that if these two guys are going to move in, it is necessarily an outright condemnation on the spot, right? It depends on what the conditions are, right? It depends on the situation. It depends on the number of things. Obviously, if they decide to move in and be allowed sexual interaction, that is a no-no. That's a defilement of the house, period, just as if you had, by the way, again, I, I, don't want to, I don't make sure I'm not just harping on homosexuals here, right? Guy with his girlfriend, same deal, same same deal, okay? Right. So if, on the other hand, they are decided they want to do something that is different, they're trying to change their ways, and they need help, that becomes a different story. So let's be careful and not necessarily create a generalization of everything. Right? And above all, we have to keep as much as possible lines of communication open. We have to show that we love them, right? Um, and, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, somebody who has a homosexual tendency, it's very, very simple. He has been loved by a man as a man. That's what the problem is. That's it. He has not been loved by a man as a man. That's what it is. And this is completely related to the huge crisis in fatherhood that we're going through. That's why you see this thing surging up like crazy. If you want to have precedence on this, read the history of Rome. They went through the same exact thing. The word virile, virility, has at its root the word vir, which is Latin for man. That came from the Roman culture. No, 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 no. Virility, vir, the word vir meant man. Oh, I mean, uh, what's happening? Uh, just, I'm, I'm, I'm yes, yes. But what I'm saying is, in Rome, there was a notion of a man. Within two generations, homosexuality prevailed. Go see why. Read the history of Rome. It's a repeat. Yes. Last question. Yeah, the question is, I said to you earlier, I'm talking to baptized, therefore, be, the, the tattoo is essentially a disposition of your own body as if it was yours, right? If God wanted to put a tattoo on you, He would. He actually did. It's called the stigmata. Okay? So therefore, the question was, what if you're not baptized? Does this mean you have a right to do that? No. Why? Because of the dominion of Christ on all of humanity. Christ isn't just the Lord of the baptized. He is the Lord of all. Therefore, even they who are not formally baptized belong to them. And remember, salvation isn't just open to those who are formally baptized. Right? Why? Because Christ claims all. That's why. Yeah? Thank you. God bless you.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.